You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court has been largely silent on the subject of gun rights for more than a decade. But now it appears that the newly conservative court will go where the justices have been reluctant to go in the past. The court is poised to rule that there is a constitutional right to carry handguns outside your home. During oral arguments on Wednesday, the conservative justices were uniformly critical of the New York law that requires a special justification to get a concealed carry license. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. You don't have to say when you're looking for a permit uh, to speak on a street corner or whatever that, you know, your speech is particularly important. So why do you have to show in this case, convince somebody that you're entitled to exercise your Second Amendment right? Why isn't it good enough to say I live in a violent area and um, I want to be able to defend myself? My guest is a leading expert on the Second Amendment, Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. So, Adam, what's your take on the oral arguments? Well, it did appear that there were a majority of justices that were prepared to strike down New York's restrictions on concealed carry. It's always hard to figure out the tea leaves just from oral argument. But there was considerable skepticism from all of the conservatives on the court towards New York's restrictions. How restrictive is the New York law? New York's law is pretty restrictive. The laws of most states allow almost anyone to get a permit so long as they're a law-abiding person. But New York, along with California and a handful of other states, make it much more difficult and only give permits to people who can show a special need or good cause to carry a firearm. And what that means is you need to have an individualized reason to carry a firearm, not just I'm generally scared of crime, but maybe I've been a victim of a stalker or I've had death threats or I work in a very high crime area. But it's difficult to get a permit in New York and in some other states. So was that the conservative justice concern that it was difficult or more that it's a constitutional right and anyone should have the right to carry a gun? 
Well, it remains to be seen exactly how the court goes with this decision. I think that it's unlikely that the court will say that, as many people in the gun enthusiast world say, that the Second Amendment is the only permit I need to carry a gun on the streets. I think the Supreme Court's likely to say that states do have authority to provide permits and to require permits for concealed carry, but they're going to say that it must be readily available to law-abiding people. Some of the justices peppered the lawyer for the NRA with questions about places where the state could bar guns, like subways, the NYU campus, Yankee Stadium. Here's Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Can't we just say Times Square on New Year's Eve is a sensitive place because now we've seen, you know, people are on top of each other. We've, we've had experience with violence. So we're making the judgment. It's a sensitive place. Well, I thought that was really interesting. You know, the court in the Heller case said that the government has the authority under the Second Amendment to keep guns out of sensitive places like government buildings and schools. The question is, how many different places does that cover? How broadly do we define sensitive places? It did seem that if you could say that the subway and Times Square and Yankee Stadium were all sensitive places, then that might be a roadmap for New York to revise its law should the Supreme Court strike the current restrictions down. New York could allow more people to carry firearms, but broadly define sensitive places to make it very difficult to bring your gun, for instance, on the subway or into Times Square or other areas of New York that are heavily populated and busy. But private organizations can ban guns. Well, that's right. I mean, anyone's constitutional rights generally stop at my property line. You don't have a right to exercise your free speech on my property, and you don't have the right to exercise your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms on my property. I don't think this court will go into, at least in this case, the balance between Second Amendment rights and private property. What we're really talking about in the New York case is the ability to carry guns in public generally. The two sides seem to be reading history and coming out with a different conclusion. Here's Justice Sonia Sotomayor to the attorney representing the NRA affiliate. I don't know how I get past all that history well, d- without just- you sort of making it up and saying there's a right to control states that has never been exercised in the entire history of the United States. Well, it's one of the interesting things about this area of law. It's one in which the court really does seem focused on history and tradition. And if there's historical precedence for a particular gun safety law, then that law might be constitutional permissible. And if there are not historical precedents, then it's likely questionable on constitutional grounds. But history really is complicated in this area. There is a long history of restrictions on concealed carry, and both parties were arguing in this case about how broad and what the scope of those historical bans were. What Justice Sotomayor was referencing was the fact that over the course of American history, there have been a lot of different concealed carry regimes, and the Supreme Court has never interfered with those judgment calls. And what she's suggesting is that the conservative justices are going to create this new edifice of the Supreme Court striking down state gun laws on the grounds of history and tradition, even though the Supreme Court doing that would be historically unprecedented. And how much is this case about Trump's three appointees who were supported by the NRA? Oh, this case is no doubt directly attributable to 
President Trump's appointment of three justices to the Supreme Court. After the Heller case, the court had, for the most part, stayed away from the Second Amendment and had specifically refused to rule on this exact question that was presented to it in the oral argument about whether there's a right to carry guns in public and whether discretionary permitting that New York has and other states have is constitutionally permissible. There weren't enough votes on the court to take that case either way. But with the retirements of Justice Kennedy and the passing of Justice Scalia and Ginsburg and their replacement by Trump justices with strong pro-gun records on the lower courts, that has led to both the Supreme Court taking a new case and likely providing a bold, aggressive new vision of the Second Amendment that heretofore just didn't find much of a voice in the Supreme Court. So some of Justice Scalia's sort of disciples on this court may go even further than he would have gone. That's right. The Heller case had very specific language that suggested it was a compromise, that suggested that states do have regulatory authority over things like bans on felons possessing firearms or restricting guns from sensitive places. But the justices seemed very interested in history and tradition. And Paul Clement, arguing on behalf of the challengers to New York's law, said, we really don't need to look at history past 1871. Well, if we don't look at history past 1871 after the adoption and ratification of the 14th Amendment, well, then bans on felons possessing firearms cannot be constitutionally permissible. Bans on people with mental illness from having firearms cannot be constitutionally permissible. We might even note that sensitive places, which it did seem like a majority of justices were willing to say states could keep guns out of, also have no historical precedent pre-1871. So I think this case is going to put the conservative justices who believe in history and tradition in an awkward place, trying to say that only history matters, but yet much more modern forms of regulation seem very mainstream and unlikely to be struck down. Have lower courts generally sustained gun control regulations? Yeah, since the Heller case, there have been over a thousand federal court decisions on a wide variety of gun safety laws, the vast majority of which have been upheld. Um, uh, and this has led some of the justices, including Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Alito, to complain that the Second Amendment is being treated like a second-class right, they say. And uh, uh, what that seems to suggest is that they think more gun laws should be struck down and that the lower courts aren't doing a good enough job on it. And I think that's why this case is really so important. It's not just about New York's concealed carry laws. It's a signal that the court is prepared to step back into the Second Amendment, to strengthen Second Amendment protections, and call into question gun safety laws. I think we can expect to see the court take on bans on assault weapons and bans on high-capacity magazines before too long. Public approval of the court is at an all-time low, and a majority of Americans favor gun control laws. So how far do you think the justices are willing to go here, stepping out of line with the mainstream of the country? Well, I do not think the justices, especially the conservative justices, are really interested in what public opinion polls say. 
And I don't think they're going to be guided in their constitutional analysis at all by public opinion, at least in any direct and straightforward way. And so I think if the Supreme Court has a low approval rating now, well, just wait until they require guns on the streets of New York and California. Just wait until they overturn or severely cut back Roe versus Wade, as they seem almost certain to do this term, and maybe even take on and declare unconstitutional race-based affirmative action. I think we'll see the court's approval rating plummet even further. So I don't think we've found the depth of the Supreme Court's approval ratings quite yet. And a ruling against New York would have consequences for at least a half dozen other states. Would that mean that they would have to rethink their laws? I do think that's exactly what it's going to mean. I think places like New York are going to have to think of new ways to restrict gun carrying or to protect public safety on the public streets. And it's not just New York. It's also California and Hawaii and Massachusetts, a number of other states. And I think that there's going to be a variety of gun laws that they're going to have to reconsider in the wake of the new invigorated Second Amendment on behalf of the Roberts Court. And Adam, should gun control groups change their approach in light of the Supreme Court? And you personally, as a historian, what's your take on where the gun laws should be according to our history and the Constitution? Well, I think one of the interesting things that I found in my historical research is that there has been a wide variety of gun regimes in the different states. And what we've seen traditionally is that the courts have generally taken a hands-off approach, given plenty of leeway to lawmakers to regulate firearms so long as they don't completely bar citizens from having guns for personal protection. Um, and I think that's what history and tradition suggest, that there is a considerable leeway for legislators to uh, experiment with gun regulation uh, so long as people have that basic core right to defend themselves. Um, whether that ends up being the history and tradition that the court accepts or whether the court instead views the history and tradition as really just being about broad freedoms for uh, people to have firearms, I guess that remains to be seen. And Adam, should gun control groups change their approach in light of the Supreme Court? Well, I do think that uh, the new Supreme Court, with its new Second Amendment protections, it does require the gun safety movement to change. Look, the gun safety movement has arguably not, never been stronger than it is right now. There's a huge grassroots mobilization in favor of gun reform. There are wealthy new organizations like Everytown and Gabrielle Gifford's organization. And we've even seen gun safety organizations outspending the NRA on some recent elections. And so that movement is strong, but it has put perhaps too much weight into proposals like banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines that are likely to run afoul of this Supreme Court. So I think that the gun safety movement should uh, stop trying to regulate the types of guns that we have and instead focus on things like community intervention programs that have a proven track record of reducing gun violence, of unshackling the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the main federal gun law enforcement agency that's been hobbled by artificial restraints that have been imposed by the NRA and its allies in Congress. And of course, we need better and universal background checks. I think we can continue to try to reduce gun violence, despite the fact that the court's going to make it hard to regulate particular types of weapons. Thanks so much for being on the show, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School.
A note. Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Everytown for Gun Safety, which filed a brief at the Supreme Court supporting the New York restrictions. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court heard arguments on Monday in a high-stakes case over the strictest abortion law in the country, the Texas law that has stopped most abortions in the state. The focus was on the unusual provision Texas included that makes the law enforceable only through private lawsuits in order to keep federal courts from getting involved in enforcing constitutional rights. Liberal Justice Elena Kagan was the most vocal critic of the law. Some geniuses came up with a way to evade the commands of that decision as well as the command that the broader, even the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights. And it came as a bit of a surprise when conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh jumped in and signaled he agreed with Kagan. And Justice Kagan points out there's a loophole that's been exploited here uh, or used here, which is the um, private suits are enforced by state court clerks or judges. So the question becomes, should we extend the principle of ex parte young to, in essence, close that loophole? Joining me is Mary Ziegler, a professor at Florida State University College of Law and author of the book, Abortion and the Law in America, A Legal History. 
the question before the court is not whether SB 8 is constitutional. What is the question before the court? Well, there are really two questions. One is whether SB 8 style laws are permissible, basically whether states like Texas can use this kind of exotic strategy to prevent federal courts from hearing challenges. And then there's a second question, which is whether the Justice Department can bring a constitutional challenge against SB 8 in the way that it has. So they're both kind of complicated procedural questions. What kind of concerns did you hear from the justices? There were obviously some justices that were sympathetic to Texas Solicitor General, but I think there were real concerns that if they sanctioned what was going on with SB 8, that that wouldn't be the end of the matter. In other words, that states could use similar strategies to circumvent other constitutional rights. And so even though many of us think the court is skeptical about Roe v. Wade and may be poised to reconsider Roe v. Wade, that doesn't mean the justices are going to be happy with allowing states to kind of take the power unto themselves to void or nullify rights that the court still recognizes. We heard that concern from justices on both sides of the ideological spectrum. Justice Kavanaugh used the example of a law restricting Second Amendment rights. Well, I think Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett seem to hold similar concerns about whether this was a model that could affect other areas of the law. So Justice Barrett asked about the First Amendment. Justice Kavanaugh asked about the Second Amendment which I think raises real questions about whether either of them will be voting with Texas in this case, at least in the case involving the abortion providers. As I mentioned, there are two cases before the court. Yes, there's a case by the abortion providers and a case by the Justice Department. Now, several of the justices seem to have problems with the idea of suing judges. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts' response to Mark Herron, a lawyer representing the providers. It's the rules that have been created by the Texas legislature that turn courts into a weapon that can be used to uh, nullify constitutional rights. You might appreciate that the idea of suing the judges sort of got our attention. Uh, But is is there even a case or controversy? Obviously, the Supreme Court justices are themselves judges, and so that was a concern that came up. There were questions, I think, too, about if you were going to find a way around the hurdles that Texas erected, who would be the right people to sue and whether judges would be the ones to be sued? The court mentioned several past cases that the Supreme Court had decided that treated judges as the ones doing the enforcing, for example, of a racially restrictive covenant that limited where families of color could live. Courts were considered to be the ones enforcing the law in that situation. But if interpreted the wrong way, that could be an exception that swallows the rule. Justice Elena Kagan, I think, sarcastically called the state legislators who wrote this some geniuses. But does it seem as if they were very smart in the way they constructed this law? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this was a ban on abortion at six weeks. And until the Supreme Court says Roe v. Wade is gone, that's blatantly unconstitutional. So the fact that we're even having a serious conversation about whether Texas has the power to do this does suggest that this was a clever law indeed, because there's no other way, absent this kind of procedural intricacy, that we would even be having a serious conversation about this right now. Did it seem from questioning as if Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch didn't have a problem with the law. Yeah, I think that 
Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito, I think more or less seemed to believe that the hurdles that Texas had erected were sound and that there was nothing particularly disturbing about the strategies that Texas had used here. But I think obviously that's only three justices, which means that Texas could still find itself in some real trouble. But there do seem to be enough votes to support the abortion providers challenge. Well, I think it's much less clear that the Justice Department is going to fare well in the court. Several of the justices at various points asked basically if the court were to side with the abortion providers in that case, whether it would make it unnecessary to resolve the Justice Department's case. There was also, I think, more skepticism of the Justice Department's position. So I don't know if the Justice Department is going to fare as well, but it does seem that there may not be five votes for Texas in the abortion providers case. Why was there so much skepticism about the Justice Department's position? What the Justice Department is doing is is quite unprecedented in some ways. And I think the justices were um, not convinced that the United States could show enough of an injury, could show that it had equity powers to bring this sort of lawsuit. All of the kinds of, even the idea that the Justice Department had to you know, break its tradition of not bringing constitutional challenges of this kind because of what was unusual about SB8, that the Justice Department had enough of an injury, right, that its sort of sovereign interest in ensuring that states respect the Constitution was tangible enough. I think the court found all of that um, to be harder to credit. So, um, and again, I think the Justice Department suit is, is really procedurally complex, even compared to the abortion provider suit. And so, I think there was some interest in maybe avoiding that morass altogether and resolving the abortion provider's case and then maybe using that as a way to dodge what the Justice Department had raised in terms of questions. You have the three liberals and Justice Roberts, and it seems as if Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh may vote on the side of the abortion providers from their questions. Not that we can tell everything from questions, but from their questions, does it seem that way? I think that's right. I mean, I think if you were guessing now, you would guess that there are at least five and maybe six votes against Texas in the abortion providers case. Let's assume that the justices side with the abortion providers. What happens then? The law is still in effect. It's just the suit can Um, go forward. Right. So, I mean, it it depends. So there, there are different ways that the court could handle this from a remedial standpoint. The court could issue some kind of emergency relief itself, essentially just block SB8 itself. Or the court could simply remand to the district court. And that might take a little bit longer in the sense of, you know, SB8 might still be in effect while that litigation continued. So if the court were to issue some kind of remedy on its own, that might block SB8 immediately. By contrast, if the court issues a remand, then we may be, you know, waiting a while still while SB8 is in effect. Sort of in the background here is that in just one month, the court is going to be considering a Mississippi abortion law on the merits. The Mississippi case is a ban on abortion at 15 weeks. What's significant is that that's before a fetal viability, which takes place at around the 24th week of pregnancy. So to uphold the Mississippi laws, many expect the court to do, the court will either have to say Roe v. Wade was wrong in its entirety or that the right to choose abortion doesn't apply until viability. Either of those would be a major decision that would put the court on the path to eliminating abortion rights altogether at some point. Your feeling is that the court will uphold the Mississippi law? I think that's right. I don't think they would have taken the case if that wasn't their intention. How would they be able to uphold that and not 
overturn Roe? Well, the, they would have to finesse what Roe means, um, much as they have in the past, right? So the court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 has said, essentially, you know, we're keeping the essential parts of Roe and we're getting rid of the unessential parts of Roe. Uh, and at the time, they meant they were getting rid of the trimester framework, which was actually the rule of law at the time. And we're keeping the idea that there's a right to choose abortion before viability. So the court has played this game before where what they mean by Roe has changed, and it's possible that they could do that again. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Mary. That's Professor Mary Ziegler of the Florida State University College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.